0: Well, this morning we're continuing our look at the, uh, our study of David's life and some of the really special and unique and interesting things that the Lord did during the course of David's life and during the course of, of the years that David reigned over Israel that I think are very instructive in our walk with the Lord, hopefully very encouraging in our walk with the Lord as well. And one of the things that we're going to see in the portion of Scripture that we're looking at today, we're going to be in 2 Samuel chapter 6. And as we look at this scripture, you're going to see an example here of what it looks like not to be too dignified. And what I mean by that is this, I think a lot of times, sometimes we, we, we go through life thinking that we have to convey some sort of an appearance or some sort of a demeanor or, or something of that nature, and at times we can actually hold back from expressing what the Lord wants us to express or conveying even some of the emotion that the Lord would like us to express, and that He gives us the liberty to express. And so what we're going to talk about as we look at this uh, chapter together is this idea of never being too dignified to seek the Lord's presence. And so if you would take your Bibles and turn with me to Second Samuel 6. I'm going to start off by reading the the first 11 verses, and then we're going to revisit other portions of this chapter this morning. But let's start with the first 11. It says this, David again gathered all the chosen men of Israel, 30,000. And David arose and went with all the people who were with him from Baal Judah to bring up from there the ark of God, which is called by the name of the Lord of hosts, who sits enthroned on the cherubim. They carried the ark of God on a new cart, and brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. And Uzzah and Ahio, the sons of Abinadab, were driving the new cart with the ark of God, and Abio went before the ark. And David and all the house of Israel were celebrating before the Lord with songs and lyres and harps and tambourines and castanets and cymbals. And when they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah put out his hand to the ark of God and took hold of it for the oxen stumbled. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah, and God struck him down there because of his error, and he died there beside the ark of God. And David was angry because the Lord had broken out against Uzzah, and that place is called Perez Uzzah to this day. And David was afraid of the Lord that day, and he said, how can the ark of the Lord come to me so David was not willing to take the ark of the Lord into the city of David, but David took it aside to the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite. The ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom the Giddite three months, and the Lord blessed Obed-Edom and all his household. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for your word and for the things that you show us in the portion of Scripture that we just read and the things that you will show us in the additional Scriptures that we look at together this morning. Lord, we pray that as we go about our lives, we pray that we would be men and women who honestly desire to live in the midst of your presence. We see that that was on the heart of David. That was certainly something he was concerned with, and that's certainly something you want us to be concerned with as well. So Lord, we pray that we would learn more about what that looks like as we look at this passage together, and we pray that you'd speak to our hearts and our minds through the power of your Holy Spirit, and we pray this all in Jesus' name, amen. Now, I may have shared this story before, uh, and I I think sometimes, you know, when when I'm going through some of the examples in my life, sometimes I think, have I shared this before? And I'm at the season of life where I think I've shared everything that I've shared before, maybe four times, maybe five times. Um, but every time I think it's the first time I've shared it. But then I was thinking, well, maybe I've shared this before. So if I have, just bear with me because I think it illustrates something here in the portion of Scripture that we're looking at today I think is useful. But I'll tell you, one of the, the stranger moments of my life occurred when I was mowing the lawn soon after becoming a pastor. I was in my early 20s at the time, and it was a very hot summer day, and I remember stepping outside to do some yard work, At the time, we did not own a home of our own, but the church that I served had a parsonage with a small yard, and it was right next to the church building. In fact, it was actually connected to the church building. So there was an office between the church and the house that connected both buildings, and for several years, that's where my family lived. The church and the parsonage were on one of the busier streets in town which is great in some respects. I remember in some respects thinking, like, this is actually very practical. And then it was not so great in other respects. So I liked the fact that it was there because it was helpful for the church, that its building was highly visible, that people didn't find it difficult to find. But it wasn't always ideal for me personally because my already public life was being made even more public by the constant traffic that was going by the building. And whenever I would work outside, so if I was working to shovel snow, if I was working in the yard, whatever was going on, people would politely beep and wave. Now, I'm a social person, so I actually enjoyed that. And I just got used to the fact that, you know, even before I tried to figure out who it was, was, the whole time I was out there, I was waving, waving to people. Like, it was just, you know, every few moments I'd hear a beep, I'd be like, hey, and then I'd look to see who it was. I'd just wave and wave and wave. But some people didn't beep. They just stared and observed whatever I was doing. And I soon learned that there was at least one elderly woman in that community who had a very strong opinion about how I mowed the parsonage lawn. <laughs> now, she didn't, she didn't care about the path of the mower. She didn't care about like, whether I was leaving stripes in the lawn or anything like that. It was a very small lawn. She didn't care about the blade height either right, the things you would think, obviously, those must be the things that she would care about, right? Her big concern was the clothing that I would wear while I was mowing. That was her big concern, and I'll never forget the day when she confronted me. It was just a few days after that mowing, and she said, I saw you mowing the other day, and then she paused like there was more to it, and I'm like, and she goes, in shorts. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I remember being like, is there more to this I'm like it's July like what did you want me to wear like scuba outfit or like something? I'm like what is what is she getting at she's like in shorts and I discovered she was not pleased like this wasn't a joke she legit was not pleased apparently in her mind this was not a dignified manner for a pastor to dress and I soon learned that there was a time decades earlier I asked people about it I was like why would she think that way like what's so odd about this and I found out there was a time some decades earlier when some of the local clergy in that community would literally wear suits and formal clothing when they were working outside. And I was like, so they really did that? And they were like, yeah, they used to do that. And I was like, oh, so that, I guess this must stand out as a little different. Now, in my opinion, there is a time when formal attire is appropriate, certainly. I think there are other times when it isn't quite as necessary, and admittedly, I think we'd all probably admit that that's probably a little bit subjective. We all probably have opinions about that one way or another. I think in the end, what matters most is our heart before the Lord. It matters more than outward appearances. It matters more than formalities. And uh, But I remember thinking about that a lot in that context, and you can't help but think about that when you look at 2 Samuel chapter 6, which we just started to read, and we're going to get into a little bit more in just a few moments, because that's something that David demonstrated was on his mind and on his heart as well. That's actually something I, re- I really appreciate about David. Scripture lets us see glimpses into his life that, that reveal that he had a heart for the things that mattered to God. If something mattered to God, it mattered to David. He he wanted to be in tune with the Lord's will and with the Lord's heart. And sometimes in David's life, he was actually accused of not being maybe as formal or as dignified as he could have been while giving God praise. But David desired to live his life in the midst of the Lord's presence, and he wasn't really concerned all the time with outward appearances. And because he desired to live in the presence of God, but that was his heart's desire. During the, for that reason, during the early years of his kingship, David wanted the Ark of the Covenant brought to Jerusalem, where he reigned. Now, the backstory on this is, decades earlier, the Ark had been captured by the Philistines in battle. And after they had it for a little while with them, they started experiencing clear evidence of judgment for their theft of the Ark, and so they returned it to Israel. And for 20 years, it was kept in the home of Abinadab, whose son, Eliezer, looked after it. Now, if you're not familiar with what the Ark looked like, that's a a pretty good guesstimate. Also, if you've seen Indiana Jones and, you know, what is it? Raiders of the Lost Ark. Like, I remember one of my Bible professors in college saying, it's actually a pretty good representation of what the Ark looked like. So who knows? Hollywood got one thing right, all right? But that's about what it looked like, roughly. The Ark if you're not familiar with what the Ark was or the history, if this is something you've never even heard of before, if, you're not, if you haven't really read much into Old Testament history, which, by the way, I would encourage you to do, but to just give you a little background on it, if you're not familiar with it, the Ark was a visible sign of the covenant that God made with Israel during the time of Moses. And it was a chest of wood that was made out of acacia wood. And as you can see from the, the slide that I have behind me here, it was also overlaid with gold. Inside the Ark were the tablets that God inscribed the Ten Commandments on they were kept inside the ark. Uh, the Ark itself was also to be kept in the inner area of the tabernacle and then it was later housed in the temple after that structure was built but it was it was set apart it was it was just essentially for the most part kept out of view the lid so look at this area right here, you know just the lid covering the ark you see the the um, the carving of angels or the the form of angels with their wings stretched over it. But this area here, this lid or this covering that's over the ark, that area was called the mercy seat, that specific lid. And once a year on the Day of Atonement, you'd have the high priest who would enter into the place where the ark was being kept, and he would atone for his sins and for the sins of the people by sprinkling the blood of a sacrificed animal on the mercy seat. He would do that each year on the Day of Atonement. By the way, there's great prophetic uh, significance to this act that I'm going to come back to in just a few moments. But in 2 Samuel 6, the portion of Scripture that we we just read together, started reading together, we're told about the process David orchestrated to actually bring the ark from Abinadad's home back to Jerusalem. He wanted to bring it back to Jerusalem. The ark, Scripture tells us, was placed on a brand-new cart, And you have David, the the image we're given here is David and all the people of Israel just celebrating as the ark was being brought toward the city. In a very real way, God's presence went with the ark. And David loved the thought of serving and leading in the presence of God. And so he very much wanted the ark to be brought into the city of David, into Jerusalem. So as the ark was being transported, and we saw this in the opening verses of the chapter, It was being transported on a uh, a new cart. It was being pulled by oxen. The Scripture tells us that the oxen stumbled, and Uzzah, one of the other sons of uh, Abinadab, reached out to keep the ark from falling off the cart. Now, when you look at that, you would probably say, that's like a logical thing to do. I mean, you know, why, why why would he not do that? You would think that that would make sense, I think, to most of us. And anyone in a context like that, if you're transporting the ark from one place to another... And it starts to possibly shift off the cart or maybe maybe fall. You're thinking, okay, we got to do what we can to make sure it doesn't fall. And so Uzzah, he actually reaches out to keep the ark from falling off the cart. You could say his motives were good. I think his motives were good. But his methods were not in accord with the clearly stated will of God. In Numbers chapter 4, God declared that when the ark needed to be moved, It should only be transported by poles that were carried by the Levites. So you can see the poles here. Those were things that would be, if it was going to be transported, those would be inserted into those rings, and then it would be carried by the Levites. So Uzzah died because of this error as God struck him down. Now, with that fresh in our minds, just kind of have that moment in your mind for just a second. I want to ask a somewhat personal question. Have you ever questioned God's plans? Might be kind of an easy question to ask because I would suspect that probably all of us, at least a little bit, or maybe a lot, have done that from time to time. I have questioned God's plans, which is, I know it sounds ridiculous, but I think just in our humanity, sometimes we do that. Sometimes we think, like, is he missing something? I know he has a lot to keep track of. Like, did he, did he miss this? Or why is his timing like this? Or why is this the method he chooses to do this? Or whatever it may be. Um, but how about this? Maybe a good follow-up to that would be, have you ever become irritated or angry with God over the way he chose to do things? Does that ever happen? You don't have to admit it out loud because I know you want the people sitting next to you to think you're super, super spiritual, right? So you just think it in your head, but I think sometimes it's kind of common for us to actually get a little angry and a little irritated with God when we look at some of the ways that he chooses to do things because we're thinking, why would you do it that way? Like, we're omniscient, right? Like, we know how all this works out together. It's like, from my perspective, from my vantage point in this small, brief period of time where I live in a fixed location and can't see all things taking place at once, I don't understand why you would do this. So somehow I feel justified in getting angry with you, Lord, because I don't understand what you're actually up to. If you were David, you saw Uzzah struck dead as the, as the ark was being brought into this or toward the city of David, how would you have felt about that? How would you have felt as you're trying to accomplish this, you go from celebrating, everyone's happy, everyone's having a lovely time, and then you see it struck down while attempting to do what he thought was right. It wasn't like he was trying to be um, malicious or anything like that, but he struck down as he attempts to do what was right, even though what he did wasn't right. It wasn't how it was supposed to be moved. Uh, but you have, you have David looking at this. How would you have felt if you were him? Would it have bothered you to see that happen? Scripture tells us David got angry over this. And by the way, one of the things I appreciate uh, about David is the fact that you don't really have to spend a whole lot of time figuring out, like, I wonder how David feels. You know, when you're reading through the scriptures, like, it's not really a mystery. Aren't you grateful for people in your life that are, uh, you know, like a little bit clear with you, that you, you just don't have to wonder what they're thinking or how they feel? I hope, I hope my daughter will be okay with me saying this. I do not have her permission to say this. So, uh, But last night, she did me a big favor. Um, she just bought her prom dress. And uh, she showed me a picture of her in it. And I said, oh, that's nice. And then I noticed at the, at the dinner table, she wasn't saying a whole lot. And then she looked at me and she's like, I'm going to give you another shot to say that again, Dad. And I was like, what's going on? And she goes, let's take a look at the picture again. And let's see if maybe we could do this with a little more enthusiasm this time. And I was like, <laughs> I was like what did I say? And, I, and Andrea was like, no, you were kind of distracted. I was like, oh, uh, all right, let's do it again. I was like, that looks awesome. That looks awesome. And then I literally looked at Julia and I was like, honestly, you're one of my favorite people on this earth. And that's the honest truth. She truly is. I was like, wouldn't life just be easier if everybody could just shoot straight with you like that? Like I was expecting more enthusiasm, dad. Let's let's get that pumped up a little bit, right? And I was like, why are you like the way you are? And why do I love it so much? Like I, I meant that with all my heart. I was like, that was such a favor. I wish people would just in life in general do that. And you look at scripture here and you see David's reaction to all of this and it tells us he got angry. Like he just got really irritated with all this. I, I, I think he was probably puzzled. I think he was confused. I think he was frustrated because in one respect he loved the Lord, but now in this moment I think he was kind of angry with the way the Lord handled this and he in the midst of all this, has to make a decision, and so he just directs that the ark be placed in the house of a man named Obed-Edom instead of being brought into the city. Because he's saying, "What's going to happen if I bring this into the city? Uzzah's dead. Like, is this or what are we doing wrong? Like, I don't get it. I thought I was doing the right thing, and apparently we're doing something wrong. And um, I don't know what David thought was going to happen to Obed-Edom when the ark was being brought into his house." That's kind of something I was wondering, too, in looking at this. He instructs that the ark, instead of being brought into the city of David, be brought into Obed-Edom's house. Like, did he think good things were going to happen to Obed-Edom? Or did he think, you know what? We'll see what happens to Obed-Edom, but it's got to go somewhere, and we're going to start with your house. And I wonder what Obed-Edom was thinking. He's like, wait a second. Uzzah! It's like, the king just told you to take it in your house. It's like, I have no idea what's about to happen next. Well, Three months later, David received a very positive report about Obed-Edom and about Obed-Edom's household and how they were being divinely blessed. It was really special. If you look at verses 12 through 15 of 2 Samuel 6, it says, And it was told King David, the Lord has blessed the household of Obed-Edom and all that belongs to him because of the ark of God. So David went and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. And when those who bore the ark of the Lord had gone six steps, he sacrificed an ox and a fattened animal. And David danced before the Lord with all his might, and David was wearing a linen ephod. So David and all the house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouting and with the sound of the horn. Now, this is, I have to tell you, one of my favorite portions of Scripture regarding David and regarding his propensity to worship the Lord. We're told here that David, at this moment, wasn't dressed in kingly robes, and we're going to see that some people took issue with that, but he's not dressed in kingly robes. He rather chose just to wear a simple linen ephod like the priests would wear. And by the way, he's, he's about to be accused of, of kind of dressing indecently, and you're going to see that in just a moment. Don't accept that accusation. David wasn't dressing indecently. This is the way that the priests would dress, these simple linen ephods. He simply wasn't wearing all the the like the like robes and all the pomp that typically a king would, would wear. He's just wearing something a little bit more simple in this moment, but that's what he's doing. And as the ark was being brought into Jerusalem, we're told here David just danced with all his might. So just picture him spinning around and Jumping for joy and working up a sweat and shouting at the top of his lungs as the ark is being brought into the city, he's excited. He, he's not just leading the people, he's one of the people, and uh, this is a good day, and he just can't contain his joy, and he was not inclined to keep his feelings under wraps as he expressed it. He thought, you know, I'm just going to say it, I'm just going to communicate it, this is, this is exactly what I want to convey. And I I wonder, when I look at portions of Scripture like this, and I'll just pose this as a question for all of us, but do you ever wonder if maybe sometimes we're trying a little too hard to remain dignified when we express our thankfulness to the Lord? You know what I mean by that? Like, do you ever wonder if we just kind of, I don't know, just kind of try and give off this air of being just so dignified and so proper when really the Lord just wants us to express something that is genuine? You know, let me, let, me, uh, let me ask it like this. Do you ever, anyone here guilty of singing in their car when they're alone? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to raise both hands on that one. Sometimes I do that, and then I'm like, I should steer. I should steer. Uh, but I, uh, I do that all the time. And I remember when I was dating Andrea, I was like, okay, I've got to keep this under wraps here. I don't want her to know how into, into this I get until I'm sure she's mine. And uh, but then and I would only pick songs that I thought like this is a good respectable song like she will like this song I'm not gonna let her hear all the music. I really listened to so that we're just gonna listen to this And uh, then once I was convinced like oh, no, we're good The gloves were off at that point and she's like what is going on? And I would see her like can, can I just turn this down a little bit? It's like at the good part like at the good part can not you like wait till the guitar solo is over or how many of you um, find yourself... Like, I take it a step further than that. It's not just the singing, okay? Any of you excellent steering wheel drummers? I don't know how that translates into any useful skill in day-to-day life, but I know in my car it makes a drive pass by really quickly. And, uh, and I, I think to myself, I'm like, this is fun. You ever get caught, though, singing and drumming by another driver, and you discover they're looking at you? And then you're like, oh... I used to care about that. I've just stopped at this point. I was like, one of two things is going to happen. Either I'm going to inspire you to say, you know what? We're good doing this on the road. I see other people doing this. Or you're going to laugh your head off, and it's going to be the highlight of your day. So whichever one, I feel like I'm going to bless you. So I'm just letting you know, if you're driving around town and you happen to see that, remember that you heard it here first, all right? But I think sometimes... That can be a good example of a time where we just kind of allow ourselves to be a little bit more expressive, and uh, we think, you know what, no one can see me. Like, I'm just kind of by myself. I could be listening to worship music and just praising the Lord. I can be uh, just enthusiastic as I I feel like no one can see me. But then as soon as someone can see us, what do we do? We, like, tense up, got to put the good face on, got to put the good shirt on, got to be super dignified. Sometimes I wonder if we just fight allowing our spre- our, ourselves to express something that touches our heart because it's not as dignified as when something touches our head. When something touches my head, it's very easy for me to convey that in a dignified manner. But when something touches my heart, sometimes it feels a little less dignified. It doesn't have as much structure sometimes. And I look at that and I think, you know, do we, do we fight that? I think I fight that sometimes. Maybe you fight that as well. But then I look at David here. And I see David having a wonderful time worshiping the Lord as the ark was being brought into his city. He celebrated enthusiastically, he celebrated the reality of God's presence, being right there with them and being right there with the people that he led. But of course, not everybody shared in this joy, right? Not everybody's going to share in this. David had multiple wives at the time, one of which was a woman named Michael. Michael was the daughter of Saul. And she actually seemed disgusted with David's dancing and with David's exuberance. Uh, I think it was all too undignified or all too improper for her snooty and her pretentious tastes. And when you look at verses 20 through 23, it says this, and David returned. So again, he's in a good mood. He's blessing the households of Israel. He's giving them food. He's doing all these nice things. And then he returns to bless his own household. And look at what he's greeted with when he comes home. It says, and David returned to bless his household. But Michael, the daughter of Saul, came out to meet David and said, now hear her tone as she says this. How the king of Israel honored himself today, uncovering himself today before the eyes of his servants, female servants, as one of the vulgar fellows shamelessly uncovers himself. And I can imagine, I'm just going to pause there for a second. Can you just imagine how deflating that moment would have been? I could just see him in some respects just being like... (sighs) In verse 21 it says, And David said to Michael, It was before the Lord who chose me above your father and above all his house, to appoint me as prince over Israel, the people of the Lord, and I will celebrate before the Lord. And then he says, I will make myself yet more contemptible than this, and I will be abased in your eyes. But by the female servants of whom you have spoken, by them I shall be held in honor. And then it says, and Michael the daughter of Saul had no child to the day of her death. It's a very interesting portion of scripture. And instead of, instead of, joining David in this moment. Instead of sharing David's joy, we're we're basically told here that Michael mocked it. And I actually get the impression, and you can kind of see this trajectory if you're reading, you know, in in the book of 1 Samuel leading up to the things that are uh, collected here in 2 Samuel, but I get the impression that she may have struggled with jealousy much like her father Saul did. Saul was known as a jealous man, and I, I kind of wonder if maybe she was bothered to observe the obvious ways that the Lord was blessing David and the ways in which the people celebrated right along with David because that wasn't the type of thing that she was used to seeing her father experience. Now, her father kind of lived his life in such a way that kind of went and did his own thing instead of honoring the Lord. And here's the the thing, like if you go your own way instead of honoring the Lord, don't expect the Lord to bless that. And that's kind of what Saul did. You know, He just kind of went his own way and then the kingdom was taken away from him. The kingdom was given to David. And I think Michael, as she looks at this, she's like, boy, he's having a good time. The Lord seems to be blessing David in so many respects. The people are right there, one one of heart with David, celebrating with them. But that wasn't the kind of blessing I saw my dad receive. And so she looks at this, and she's bothered by it. And either way, she just tries to put David down. But one of the things that I really like as I look at this, her insults couldn't quench his desire to honor the Lord. I'm sure he was a bit irritated and, and perturbed in the way she spoke to him, but it didn't stop, it didn't quench his desire to honor the Lord. I think in modern English, if you look at his response and, and maybe think about it the way we might be tempted to say it if we were in his context, you know, I think you could look at his words and say, you thought that was undignified. You haven't seen anything yet. And I think that there's a lesson for us in a a story like this. And I hope that we'll contemplate this. I know that there are, are some of us gathered here who are very, very enthusiastic about their walk with Jesus. Some of you are brand new believers in Christ, and your enthusiasm for the Lord is contagious. It just comes out of your mouth. It comes out of your attitude, your mindset, It's very obvious, it's very clear, it's something that uh, you can't help but feel good when you're around, and I see that quite frequently, but I also know that some of you, maybe many of us, have people in our life that don't necessarily share that joy, all right? Don't always expect your, your joy in the Lord to be appreciated or reciprocated by everyone in your life. Even some of your own family, like in this context here, you have Michael, who should have been sharing in this joy with David, and yet she doesn't. You are just as likely as David to encounter people in your life who will mock you, or who will misunderstand you, or who will put you down, or who will openly attempt to discourage you. I would encourage you, don't let their harsh and hurtful words rob you of what Jesus has blessed you with. There are some people, even professing believers sometimes, I think that they think it's their mission in this world to be the critic of everything. You know, there's, there's a, a few things locally that I've been making the news, and I won't go into the details of those things, um, but it's like, I, I, there's some people I know that I think, like, oh, is it just your goal to just criticize everything, like you're the all-knowing sage that has opinions about everything that we should all just bow to? And I'm like, good, good for you. I'm glad you think you know it all, but... Like why, like, why go through life trying to rob others of their joy in the Lord? Why go through life trying to put people down all the time? Like, isn't life hard enough? Like, why do you have to do that? And sometimes I even see believers try to do these things. And, and you look at that and you think, you know what? Don't let the harsh or hurtful words of others rob you of your joy in the Lord. And don't be surprised when you experience it. It's part of the It's just part of life. You're going to experience that from time to time. But if you're enthusiastic about the Lord's ways, trust me, that's contagious, and that's something that's rubbing off on other people around you. And praise God that it's so noticeable that someone feels the need to critique it. You made it noticeable. Your faith is not a secret. Congratulations. Those who have a faith that isn't a secret will encounter people who have opinions about it. Right? Now, let me show the ark again here. Um. I mentioned a few details about the ark and its covering a little bit earlier. The covering, again, this area here, referred to as the mercy seat. You ever considered that the mercy seat was foreshadowing something? Ever thought about that, or do you think it's just like a lid on a box? It's just a lid on a box, or is it supposed to foreshadow something a little bit deeper? During the days of David, when these things were being written about, There was one place where the sins of the people could be atoned. It was at the mercy seat, that lid, that covering for the Ark. It was there at the mercy seat that the sacrificial blood was shed and the wrath of God against the sin of man was appeased. The mercy seat, that lid on the Ark of the Covenant, it foreshadowed the atoning death of Jesus Christ on the cross. The blood of animals being sprinkled on that lid, the lid of that wooden chest, it was a precursor of the blood of Christ being shed on our behalf on a wooden cross. In the era in which we live, we have the privilege to live in right now, the cross is the one place where our sin can be atoned for, for good. No further sacrifice needs to be made. No additional blood needs to be shed. It was a foreshadowing of what Jesus would ultimately accomplish on our behalf when his blood was shed for us. So when you read about these Old Testament scriptures that are giving us a picture of the mercy seat and then, and then the, you know, this covering, right? Key word, covering, over the ark, And you have the high priest once a year shedding the blood of animals on the mercy seat, atoning for his sin, atoning for the the sins of the people of Israel. Always be asking yourself, how is this trying to point me to Jesus? It's giving you a picture of something that Christ was ultimately going to accomplish on our behalf at the cross. And again, no further sacrifice needs to be made. No additional blood needs to be shed. And like the mercy seat over the Ark of the Covenant, Jesus Christ, the perfect Son of God, is our covering. Your sins are covered because of Jesus Christ, because of what He's done on our behalf. If you trust in Jesus Christ, your sins have been covered through His shed blood. Look at what Scripture tells us. It gives us some clarification on this. When you look at what Jesus said in Matthew 26-28, he, he alludes to this when He says, "For this is my, For this is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. It's like, interesting. Now, in the context in which he's speaking this, they're used to the blood being uh, sprinkled over the Ark of the Covenant. And here he's saying, no, this is my blood of the Covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Then in 1 Peter 1-2, you have Peter saying it this way, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling... With His blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. One other scripture I want us to notice. This is in Romans chapter 4, verses 6 through 8. And there you have the Apostle Paul quoting from the Psalms when he says this. He says, Just as David also speaks of the blessings of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works, he says, Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Again, blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Where was that blood sprinkled in the days of the Ark of the Covenant? Sprinkled on the covering, sprinkled on the covering, the lid, the mercy seat that was over the Ark. And you look at what Jesus Christ has done for us. He's shown us mercy. He is the place we go to obtain mercy. He is the person to which we go to obtain mercy from. And in Christ, our lawless deeds are forgiven. And in Christ, our sins are covered. That language is being used in a purposeful way. It all ties back to the illustrations that the Lord gave us earlier. So as we finish up, let me just ask this. How joyful are you at the thought of receiving the mercy of God through the atoning sacrifice Jesus Christ made on your behalf? How joyful are you over that? Does that foster joy within your heart? How joyful are you at the realization that the blood of Christ was sufficient to cover your sins? That he covers for you. That your sins are covered. Is that something you find easy to contain and kind of stuff down? Or would you be willing to risk a little indignity in this world's eyes as you express your gratitude? Again, when I look at David, when I look at his example, when I look at his life, I see a guy who cared most about what his response to the Lord was. He cared most about his relationship with the Lord. He he wasn't somebody who was caught up in living his life to somehow satisfy the appearances of man. He cared about what his walk with the Lord looked like. And he cared about having a heart that was right with the Lord. Well, through Jesus Christ, your heart can be made right with the Lord. Through Jesus Christ, your sin can be cleansed. Through Jesus Christ, your sin can be covered. I don't know what you wrestle with. I don't know what what you beat yourself up about. I don't know what exists in your past that you wish wasn't there. But no matter what it is, the sacrifice that Christ paid or that he made on the cross on your behalf and on my behalf was sufficient to cover it. And he offers that forgiveness to you and to me. And then he gives us the privilege to go through life concerned mostly about his opinion and his perspective. Let him transform you. Let him forgive you. Let him give you a brand new way of thinking and perceiving. And don't hinder yourself from expressing joy as you meditate on the great things that Jesus Christ has done on your behalf. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for the privilege that it is to be able to look at a portion of Scripture like this as we see David just rejoicing over your presence and rejoicing over the privilege that he had to know you and to walk with you. Lord, it's exciting to see this. It's also very instructive to be able to see the critique and the analysis that he received from those who are a little more dignified from those who, who seem to have a little bit more, uh, little more social awareness or just a, a, a little bit more of a, a particular personality. Lord, help us to realize that that the simple childlike faith that you inspire us to have is not the type of thing that's going to be received well in certain contexts, but it's something you receive well. And so, Lord, we pray that we would trust you, we pray that we would walk with you, we pray that we would rejoice as we observe the long, just the long stretch of of your work throughout the course of human history to ultimately draw people unto yourself. Thank you, Lord, for the imagery that we see in the Ark of the Covenant. Thank you for what your Son, Jesus Christ, accomplished on our behalf, dying for us on the cross, then rising again on the third day. Thank you, Lord, for your love. Thank you for your presence with us right here and now. And just as David rejoiced in your presence, we pray that we would rejoice in your presence as well. Lord, we commit ourselves to you. We thank you, Lord, for your love. We pray that we would rejoice in the forgiveness that you offer and that we would walk with you daily. We ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen.